take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job. We'll be reading tonight from the very end of Job, chapter 38, Job 38, verse 39. Be reading chapter 39, and then also uh, the first five verses of chapter 40. So beginning at Job 38, verse 39, uh, through chapter 40, uh, verse 5, you'll remember that we are in the midst of the Lord speaking and speaking to Job, answering Job out of the whirlwind. And so in the first part of uh, this section of the Lord's uh, speaking to Job, he's directed our attention to the heavens uh, and the earth. He's speaking out of the whirlwind. And then at verse 39 of chapter 38, the Lord turns to his creatures and the creatures uh, of, his, of his hand. This is the Lord out of the whirlwind speaking to Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? And wander about for lack of food. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar. The thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? 
On the rock he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, And said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that as we open the scripture, we know, Lord, that this is the your very breathed out word. And so we thank you again that we can trust in your promises that uh, you have much for us to hear and to learn and much here to draw us, Lord, to faith and draw us closer to you and your glory and and majesty uh, that we would be at your feet looking to you in faith. Help us, Lord, again then to see uh, your power, your might, your worthy to be praised in this passage, even tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the midst uh, of the Lord's speaking uh, to, to Job, and you'll remember that as uh, the Lord began to speak at the beginning of chapter 38, the Lord uh, begins by challenging Job and it calls him to account for his sin. You'll remember that, that uh, why are you speaking to me with words uh, without knowledge? And then the Lord has proceeded to reveal to Job his glory in the works of creation and providence, even as we were confessing that earlier tonight, that that's how God executes his decrees. That's how God uh, works in the world, through the work of creation and his work of providence, um, carrying out all things according to his, his purpose. And so the Lord is revealing that to Job. We talked last time about his work in the heavens and the earth, and And tonight we look at his provision and care for the creatures of his hand. Now remember, Job uh, has suffered, and Job continues to suffer as the Lord speaks. His three friends, you remember, have told him uh, he's suffering because he's wicked. Uh, His friends told him that his children died probably because of their wickedness, and Job is in the state he's in because God is angry with him. Job knew his friends were wrong. That's not true, Job agonized for chapter after chapter. I love God. I fear God. I I trust God. I look to God. I I cry out to God. But he didn't understand, and he doesn't understand um, God and understanding why he's doing what he's doing. And he has been longing for God to explain his suffering to him, and it has crept into his mind that somehow God is not quite as just or as good as he thought, and that God must be angry with him. And so Elihu comes and uh, enters the story to reveal to Job that though he's not suffering because he sinned, he is sinning in his response to his suffering. That in his desire and longing and insistence that God answer him, Job is seeking to turn things upside down. It is not God who is accountable to us, but we are are always accountable to him. And faith knows that God is incomprehensibly greater than man, greater than we think. Faith knows that God is absolutely just and righteous, and it's unthinkable that the judge of all the earth would do wrong. 
Faith knows that with the prophet Habakkuk, that uh, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And faith knows that God is awesome in his majesty and is worthy of praise. And then when Elihu's speech has ended, the Lord himself has come. Now, in many ways, this, of course, is the Lord's answer to Job's suffering. He comes and he speaks out of the whirlwind. He simply reveals himself to Job. And like the mighty roaring waves of the ocean, as you imagine them, uh, you know, question upon question comes from the Lord, crashing against the shore of Job's mind and heart. And it's as if the Lord says over and over again, uh, look at this. Have you seen that? Do you know how this comes to be? All of which, of course, Job has to answer no. William Henry Green, that uh, professor from Princeton Seminary, late 19th century, said this. It might, it might, upon the first superficial view of the case, appear as though the discourse of the Lord, what the Lord's speaking here, has no particular relevance to the circumstances in which it was uttered. What is the Lord doing? He's not really giving an answer. It might seem that way. And the question, said Green, might arise, what these appeals to the magnificence of the works of God in nature have to do with the solution of the enigma to which this book is devoted. Why is a righteous man suffering? The fact is, said Green, this discourse is not directed to an elucidation or an explanation of that mystery at all. It is not the design of God to offer a vindication of his dealings with men in general or a justification of his providence towards Job. He has no intention of placing himself at the bar of his creatures and elevating them into judges of his conduct. He is not amenable to them, and he does not recognize their right to be censors of him and his ways. The righteousness of his providence does not depend upon their perceiving or admitting it. He puts himself in a totally different attitude, the Lord does. Moves upon quite another plane. He's the sovereign Lord of all, accountable to no being but himself. He does not appear to vindicate himself, but to rescue Job. How is Job rescued as the Lord speaks to him? Well, the Lord is rescuing Job from himself uh, as Job is then taken up into the wonder of the majesty and the glory of God. God's answer is basically to say to Job, remember uh, who I am, uh, remember my character, remember my faithfulness, my goodness, my justice, my wisdom, and my glory. And remember that I am the Lord here uh, of all the creatures of the earth. Notice what the Lord says, verse 39, chapter 38. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Verse 5, who has let the wild donkey go free? 
Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? So clearly, first of all, in this section of the Lord's speech to Job, the Lord wants Job and the Lord wants us uh, to have an, an animal theology. Believers need to have, uh, first of all, an animal theology. The Lord cares for, provides for the animal kingdom, clearly, in this passage, and Job needs to know it. Specifically, uh, the Lord speaks here to Job of undomesticated animals. He's not talking about cats and dogs that folks would have in their home. Well, they probably didn't have them in their home there, but uh, nonetheless. He's talking about wild animals here in Job's time, the wild world of animals untamed by man. The Lord cares and provides for them. Now, do you remember how the, uh, the book of the prophet Jonah uh, ends? The very last words of, of jo- uh, Jonah. Let me see if I can find it here. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There we go. Jonah 4 ends this way. Remember, uh, Jonah's all upset that the Lord has not wiped out the city of Nineveh because they repented. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle is how the book of Jonah ends. There's 120,000 people, God says, in that city. And you don't, have any kind of, uh, you don't have any kind of concern for them at all. And there's a whole bunch of cattle as well. Interesting. Well, of course he cares. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, of course, that uh, the Lord's the one who's created all these creatures, given them life. Not the same, uh, he's not created them in his image, but actually the Hebrew word life, nefesh, uh, is spoken of the animals too. They have, they have life. They're, they're animated. You know, they growl, they bark. Uh, they lick your face, even if you don't want them to. You know, they're alive. And uh, God made them. Of course, he cares for them. But here's the thing. The Bible also says that these uh, creatures that he has made uh, praise his name. And so, Psalm 148.7 that we read, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail and snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. You might have noticed, uh, uh, or this morning as we were talking about the, the Sabbath, that, that uh, the animals are to have a Sabbath as well. You're not to work them to death. They too need a rest. They're included in God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 where God makes a, a covenant, remember, with creation, with Noah, to preserve Noah and his family, to preserve the church. But the Bible says there he, uh, he makes a covenant with all mankind. He is not going to send another flood that would wipe out, right, all life, including the, the animals, the creatures. Of, he's not going to do that. Uh, and, of course, the picture of the new heavens and the, the new earth includes them, too. If you look in Isaiah 65, 25. And because the Lord cares for them, then he provides for them. And this is what the Lord is saying to Job. 
Uh, You don't hunt the prey for the lion, verse 38, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions. Of course, the Lord does. He satisfies their appetite. He gives them food to eat. He's concerned about the young lions. He's concerned about the young ravens, verse 41. He's concerned about the young goats, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 39. He's concerned about the young eagle, verse 30 at the end of chapter 39. Even the sparrows, you might remember, said Jesus, are not forgotten by God. Not only does he provide for them, but he is uh, Lord of time. He is Lord of their birth. He is Lord of their, their death. Job has been questioning, you remember, the Lord's timing, wanting an answer now, wanting God to come on his timetable. Job says the Lord, my timing is perfect and the times for my creatures. Birth, death, all things are known by me. Verse 1, chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? These are wild mountain goats up in the hills. No one sees them but God. And he knows. In the secret places of the mountains, the Lord is saying, I am there. I know, I observe, I watch is what that word means. He numbers the months till the birth of his creatures. I think of human conception, of course, and birth. In Psalm 139, of course, where the psalmist talks about how how we are wonderfully and fearfully made and all the days ordained for us are written in his book before one of them comes to be. He watches and observes. He knows when when Greta's going to the hospital, when that baby will come. He's numbered the months and uh, he's numbered the days of that child already. And in fact, all the days written for that child are written in his book before any of them come to be. And so it is with with creatures that you've never seen right now are up in the mountains. The Lord knows, sees them all. Ecclesiastes 9.12 says, man does not know his time, but at the right time, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly, the right time. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, Christ came. Well, whose time? Well, God's time. God's timetable, the Lord's timetable, not Job's. Freedom, that's from the Lord. Why is it that we've got these donkeys, the Lord says, out in the arid desert? Why don't they have masters? Why aren't they working and slaving in the city uh, under a driver? I've set them free. They they roam uh, in the desert. Service, Job, can you tame the wild ox? The wild ox here that's referred to in verses uh, 9 through 12. Uh, some say that uh, some of these animals they're speaking of here were six feet uh, at the shoulders. Six feet at the shoulders. You ever heard of someone being broad-shouldered? Uh, our son David is, uh, well, now what, 20? Uh, every time I see him, I think he's getting more and more broad-shouldered. Um, but he's not six feet at the shoulders. Um, a wild ox In fact, in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of the Lord's power in Numbers 23, uh, Numbers 23, 22 says, God brings uh, his people out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. In other words, when you read about horns in the scripture, when the horn is referred to, it's meant to bring uh, images of great power and might because these are horns attached to the wild ox in all his power. Can you get him to serve you, Job? What about understanding? What about this ostrich? You know, verses 13 to 18 describe this this ostrich. And as you read through those verses, literally the ostrich 
is portrayed here to be seemingly as dumb as dirt. It's true. Bible says, why does the ostrich seem as dumb as dirt? Because the Lord has not given him wisdom. That's why. But the Bible says, have you ever seen, when they, when they go, whenever ostrich, the Lord's speaking about here, uh, he, he may not be smart, but he's fast. Made him swift. <laughs> Laughs at the horse and his rider. Have you pondered that? Says the Lord. I'm going to learn a lot of things from the animal kingdom and God's care for them. Um, 2019, Popular Mechanics published an article drawing attention to the fact, a great article, drawing attention to the fact that many of man's most wondrous inventions have been stolen uh, from the animal kingdom. They wrote this, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, and for years humans have been using animals as inspiration for everything from fashion to architecture in the engineering world. This is called biomimicry. And the Lord is saying to Job, have you taken a good ponder, a good meditation here on the ostrich? Fast. Woodpecker skulls of built-in shock absorbers. Scientists are stealing their natural design for airplane black boxes. Camel nostrils can filter out uh, salt, uh, and uh, they've been used to figure out how to uh, de... Uh, de uh, what's... Uh, uh, they can take, uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how do, how do you get, how do you make salt water clean for people to drink? Desalination. Desalination. The nostrils of a camel. Hummingbirds have the ability to fly back. We saw one this afternoon at Joy's house. Hummingbirds have the ability to fly backwards, hover in place. Engineers hope to use that information in helicopter design. Scientists at MIT have mimicked otter fur in the manufacture of wetsuits. Uh, Swiss engineer George Demestrel patented the design for Velcro. You know Velcro? Maybe you have some Velcro shoes. In 1955, he did this after studying how burrs stuck to his dog's hair. And on and on it goes. Butterfly wings have been studied to produce anti-counterfeiting money technology. They look to the, to the butterfly. Have you pondered these things, the Lord says? And what about, are you the master of the war horse? And then in verses 19 through 25, that's what the Lord's describing there, a war horse. Remember, uh, in, in Job's time, the horse was the, uh, I mean, this was the cannon. I mean, this was the bazooka. This was, the, this, was your, this was your major military weapon, the horse. Majestic, the Lord describes him. Now, of course, the word majestic has already been used here in the book of Job of the Lord. And uh, Job has described the Lord as terrifying. No, the Lord says this this war horse is terrifying. Think of the Lord of the Rings. Think of the, uh, the dark riders in the Lord of the Rings. Or even the riders of Rohan and, and, the, and the huge horses as they come upon the battlefield. And man cannot stop the horse and its power and might. That's what the Lord describes here. Uh, the Lord gives them, clothes them. And it's the Lord the, is the one who makes them leap. What about those birds of prey on high? Uh, their homes, their food, where does it come from? Do you have understanding? Do you know the purpose and counsel of these things? Job, do you command the eagle? At verse 27, do you command him to go up? What's all the point here? Now, no, not Job. The Lord. The Lord does. 
The Lord commands them, knows them, sees them, feeds them, clothes them, satisfies them with food. Psalm 145, 16 says, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing, writes one Bible commentator. The Lord's defense of his counsel, or what's happening in the life of Job, is not like so many Christian celebration of the wonders of creation, if you think about this passage, in which our calendar photos are carefully chosen to be beautiful, full of grace and majesty, showing no violence or death. Rather, the Lord gives Job a brutal, in-your-face portrait of death and danger, as well as of birth and life. You'll notice at the end of chapter 39 that the Lord is describing the, uh, the young eagles, the young, uh, the, the young uh, eagles as sucking up the blood of the slain. This isn't a pretty picture, or this warrior horse. So the Lord's describing brutal, says this writer, brutal, in-your-face portrait of death and danger, birth and life. There is in the universe a great deal of death, violence, and predation, both among animals and metaphorically humans. There's danger and terror, he says. You know that, Job. You know that all this is inextricably entwined in the world you know. You can't take out the death and leave just life alone, for there would be no life without death. Any plan, any government of this world in which good is ultimately to triumph must necessarily have within it a plan to overcome evil with good. Job could not expect, we cannot expect a shallow, trite, banal, simple solution to the problem of evil. We must not be surprised if the counsel of God is inscrutable. We must not challenge his counsel with the arrogance of human claims to superhuman knowledge. Did you notice that? That a lot of things the Lord, uh, the Lord describes include sin and pain in the animal world, right? A foot may crush the, uh, the eggs of the ostrich. And there's prey, there's predators, and there's, there's prey. And all this is described, even in this chapter, as somehow under the sovereign care of, of God. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Uh, the Lord does it all. He does it for his creatures. He provides for them. He satisfies uh, the desires of every living thing. In fact, he describes here the animals uh, in verse 41 of chapter 38 as the young ones crying out to God for help. And because that is so, Jesus, of course, would say uh, in the Sermon on the Mount something like this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look, said Jesus, at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's the point. All these creatures. Job, have you seen that? Can you do that? And Job would have to say, no, no, no. And the Lord is saying, I do. I provide for all these. And Jesus says to his disciples, look at those birds. God provides for them. How much more value of value to God are you? So you don't have to be filled with anxiety about tomorrow when this is your God. So the need for an animal theology and 
Secondly, the only other thing we'll talk about tonight is the need, of course, uh, for a human response. There has to be a response here. And the Lord said to Job, verse 1 of chapter 40, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, that's you, Job, let him answer it. There's a need for animal theology, the Lord's care and providence for his creatures that we know nothing about. He is the glorious, majestic, caring, providential God, and how much more does he not care for us as people? But Job needs to respond. And you and I need to respond uh, to the truth that we hear about who God is. This is a, uh, a partial uh, text of the interview of the evolutionist, atheist, author of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, an interview he gave to Ben Stein in the film Expelled, which is in our church library. Dawkins, the evolutionist, atheist, acknowledges it's possible to find evidence of design in biology, but his conclusion may surprise you. Here's how the interview goes. Ben Stein, how did it get created, Dawkins, by a very slow process? Ben Stein, well, how did it start? Dawkins, nobody knows how it got started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. Ben Stein, and what was that? Dawkins, it was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Ben Stein, right. And how did that happen? Dawkins, I told you, we don't know. Ben Stein, what do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in Darwinian evolution? Dawkins, Well, it could come about in the following way. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology, and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, that is a possibility, and an intriguing possibility, and I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that. If you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. And that designer said Dawkins, could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. Said Dawkins, there has to be some kind of explicable, according to me, process. Friends, this is the response of unbelief. To see evidence of the creator, and that's what Ben Stein was simply to say. Can't you, is there, what about this whole matter of that everything we look at in this world, including the realms of the animal kingdom, seems to be designed as a purpose? Well, this is the heart of unbelief, isn't it? To see evidence of the creator all around us, his divinity, his power, all around us, but to suppress the truth, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. In other words, pulling God down, and raising man up. That's what the sinful nature does. Denies God's glory and elevates man. Now the Lord has challenged Job with his sin. Two sins, we find out. Words without knowledge. He said too much in response to his suffering. And here we find out The Lord speaks of Job as a fault 
finder contending or arguing with God. That means simply seeking to fault God, seeking to charge God with sin, accusing God of either lacking power or lacking justice or lacking goodness or lacking wisdom or lacking love. One, one of those things, in either way, in either case, it's a, it's a fault finder accusing God of somehow lacking in some area and not meeting our standard of what is right and good and just. It's friends suggesting that we know better than God, that we could improve on God's ways, that we are more loving, that we are more just, or that we are more righteous. And so after this initial flurry of wave upon wave of questions crashing against Job's heart and mind, the Lord wants an answer. Is it right, Job? Is it proper? Is it the heart of faith to find fault with the Almighty. Fault finder means you're not happy with how God is running his world. You're not happy with how God is running his church. You're not happy with how God is running your family or your business or your life. And if you could, if you could just have the opportunity to talk with God about his secret counsel and his will of decree, uh, you think you could, just, you could get him to change his mind and to do things your way. God says to Job, I have done nothing wrong. What has happened to your children, your wealth, your health has not been a mistake. Every detail is under my sovereign and good care. I know everything about the, the creatures of the earth. I provide for them. They cry out to me. I satisfy every desire. I do that. There is only room for one great in our relationship to God. And if we are great, God can't be. If God is great, you can't be. Who really is at fault? Here. Now, this is a question, of course, for all of us. What has God been doing in this first speech? Well, he's been doing what Jesus prayed, I think, that the Father would do for his disciples that is, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That is, we are, we are made holy, we are drawn closer to God through his word of truth. And so the Lord has been, uh, been overwhelming Job with truth to set him apart. Friends, when we suffer, when we doubt, when we struggle, when we're in the dark, when the news comes, when no news comes, when it's painful, when we hurt, when our friends accuse us or reject us, when those we love discourage us, what do we need? The Lord God says what we need is a wave after wave of truth of who God is. We need that wave after wave to wash over us, heart and soul. Derek Thomas, who I've mentioned before, wrote this. What is this chapter all about? God is systematically reducing Job to size deflating all the excess pride inside him by removing from Job's mind every thought 
that makes God out to be small. Oh, that's sanctification, isn't it? If God is at work in you and in me to, to get out every possible thought in my mind or heart that somehow God is smaller than he is. Oh, that's God's grace to show us who he truly is. It is, says Thomas, an outworking of something Elihu has said. God comes in awesome majesty. Job has been shown a little of that majesty in a tremendous display of God's wisdom and power. And so how does Job respond to this avalanche of truth and revelation of the character, power, and wisdom and care of God? Well, I like to picture Job here, um, no doubt, uh, with tears. Maybe he's speaking softly. Maybe it's barely audible only to God. Maybe only God could hear. Perhaps in groanings assisted by the Spirit. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I'll not answer twice but I will proceed no further. Should remind us of Romans 3.19, where the Bible says, the whole world is held accountable to God, and the whole world closes its mouth in accountability to God. When we are faced with who God is, we become silent, What is the proper response, friends, to the truth of who God is? Well, here we have from Job a confession of weakness, a confession of inability, a confession that God is right, that I've spoken too much, and that I will be silent. Friends, awe in God's presence is the proper response. The Apostle John would hear the voice of the risen Jesus. You might remember in the book of Revelation, he heard a voice. And then he saw something of the glory of the risen Christ. And this is what the Bible says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So in one sense, what Job is experiencing here is no different than what Isaiah would have experienced when he caught the glimpse of the robe of the Lord and his train in the temple and said, woe is me, I am undone. Or John, seeing the risen Christ falling at his feet as though dead. That's how Job responds to wave after wave of truth of the almighty power of God. Well, what about you and I? What is your response to this God in his glory and in his majesty? Have you been where Job has been? 
Surely God wants us to answer this question. That is, have we been where Job's been? Have we been, have we been sometime in our life utterly humbled by the majesty and the glory and the truth of God as it, as it waves over us? Have we seen our weakness, confessed our inability, acknowledged God is right? No, you are holy. I am sinful. I need a savior. Have we done that? And known that in his presence, silence is fitting. Well, friends, the Lord is humbling Job as he humbles us in our sin, that we might see something of his glory. And all the more so when not only do we see his majesty in the heavens and the earth through his creatures, but in the sending of his son. So that he humbles sinners like us, knowing that the glorious Savior left the glory of heaven to take on human flesh, to be in everything as we are, the Bible says, except for sin. So that one day, uh, that same sinless Savior would go to the cross, that he was made sin, he who had no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. He loves us. And if he cares for the creatures of the field, said Jesus, how much more of value are you? Said J.I. Packer, Christians grow greater by getting smaller. Christians grow greater by getting smaller. I don't have anything to say, said Job. The hand goes over my mouth. Um, You are God. Well, the Lord is not done speaking truth to Job. Uh, He's not done speaking truth to us. Uh, What more could he say? The heavens and the earth? Uh, All the creatures? Well, in the next chapter... Behold, the Lord says, the behemoth and the leviathan. Well, that must wait next time. But I'm excited, and I hope you are too. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, by your grace, send truth. Send forth your truth and your light. Lead us in the way of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that... Uh, You sent forth this avalanche, this wave upon wave of truth into the heart and life of Job, and that he responded as you would have him respond, humbled before you, that he is of small account before such a great and glorious God, that there is no fault to find with the majestic, glorious creator. The fault is ours. The sin is ours. And so we thank you for the Savior before whose feet we fall, humble before a glorious, majestic, loving, and merciful God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.